You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. I missed being here last week, didn't you? Um, so glad to be back together this week. Um, this is obviously a big day for our, our country, Independence Day, as we uh, really, you know, for me, it's a, it's a day that I celebrate the wonderful freedoms that, that God's granted us. Firstly, like the fact that we can be here, right, worshiping openly together um, and on Independence Day, we can together really declare our dependence on God, right? Our dependence on God. So uh, this morning, if you will turn, turn with me to John chapter 11. John 11. And we're going to continue to look at this narrative account of the seventh and, and final miracle that, that John records in this gospel um, that Jesus performed prior to, to his being uh, betrayed and, and his crucifixion. Although John tells us to end his gospel that there were many, 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 many other works. In fact, if, if he were to write um, all of the works that Jesus worked, he says he supposes that the world itself could not contain the books uh, that would be written about it. So, uh, but John, John specifically records these seven um, as he says in chapter 20, he says, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. Uh, so we started looking at this last uh, last time in the first 16 verses of chapter 11. Um, and we looked at those verses through the lens of, of suffering yet loved by God, if you remember. Suffering yet loved by God. And we saw that in this narrative, um, almost none of what Jesus does makes any sense to us. If you remember from last time, almost none of what he does makes sense to us. His, his message back to the family that um, you know, he, he tells the family Lazarus' sickness is not going to end in death. And then Lazarus dies. So that was super confusing. His, his timing of staying an extra two days after he's told that Lazarus is deathly sick. Jesus decides to stay an extra two days. His method of, of going back to the place where people were trying to kill him. The Jews were trying to kill him. It makes no sense to us. And then his emotion of what he says in verse 14. He says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. None of it to us makes sense on the surface. And we, of course, we dove deeply into that last time and all those things. If you want to go back and, and check that out. But. We ended on verse 16 where, where Thomas gives, I believe, the, the appropriate response for us, even in the midst of suffering and of waiting, um, of not understanding God's plan. Have you ever not understood God's plan for your life? You ever been confused about that? Like, what is going on right now, Lord? How could you, what are you, what are you doing in my life? I think Thomas gives us a good blueprint of how we should respond um, in those situations, Thomas says, let us go also that we may die with him. You know, Thomas expresses just undeterred obedience to Jesus. He doesn't necessarily agree with Jesus's plan. He doesn't get Jesus's timing. Uh, he doesn't understand what in the world Jesus could possibly be working through all of this. But he follows him anyway. He follows him anyway. And he submits that God is God and that he is, is just desperate for God's direction. Absolute obedience and submission to Christ. But, but the truth is um, that kind of obedience in the middle of your suffering is difficult, isn't it? Anybody find that easy? I just find it easy to trust the Lord when I have no idea what's going on in my life. When I cannot understand God. Anybody find it easy? I don't think so. You know, it's one thing to say I will follow Christ wherever he takes me when we are on a mountaintop, right? That's easy to say. It's a whole different ballgame to say that when you're in the valley. And maybe this morning some of you are in the valley 
And so this morning, as we look at the rest of this narrative, I want to lay for us kind of a foundation, kind of picking up on that last point we made last time, this undeterred obedience. I want to lay for us a foundation for how is that even possible? How is it even possible to follow Christ with total abandon, even in the midst of a trial? Um, so we started kind of laying that foundation last time. I don't want to look at it more fully today. So I'm calling today's message Motivations for Faithfulness Through the Trial. Motivations for Faithfulness Through the Trial. Kind of a longer title this morning, but I couldn't think of anything better. So that's what you get. Uh, motivations for Faithfulness Through the Trial. And I think Jesus displays for us at least three anchors that we can hold on to during a trial that, that help us keep our eyes on him when we're in the valley. Three revelations really about himself that we need to remember during the difficulties that life brings. You know, being, being a believer, we said this many times, but being a believer in no way rids us of suffering and of trials. Have y'all figured that out yet? Anybody become a Christian life is just awesome now? You never have any trials in your life? Of course not. Um, but here's the thing. We don't have to grieve as the world grieves. Not in the same way. We don't have to lose hope as the world uh, loses hope. You know, we have a Savior of whom Hebrews 6 says He is the anchor for our souls. He's the anchor for our souls. And Hebrews 12 says He's the author and the finisher of our faith who is the object that we can keep our eyes firmly fixed on when trials come. So this morning, I, I want us to just uh, look at this passage and, and just really adore Jesus together. Can we do that? I just want to adore Jesus together this morning. Um, let's see exactly what it is about Him that allows us to press on in faithfulness to Him, no matter what may come our way. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read... Um, Quite a few verses this morning. We're going to read 17 through 44 and kind of finish this narrative. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. That's Lazarus, that is. Uh, now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around, had joined the women around Mary and Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and, and, secretly, called her, her, and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she, wrote, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town and was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was uh, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of who was dead, him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? 
Then they took away the stone from the, from the place where the dead man was le- lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the freedom to worship you this morning. I thank you for this church family. And God, I thank you for the sweet, sweet fellowship that we have, Lord. Um, God, I pray this morning that you would move me out of the way that you would remove all distractions and that you would just speak to your people. And God, if there's one who doesn't know you this morning, will you please save them, Father? Will you please save them? If there's a Christian who's in the valley this morning, will you please comfort them with these words, Lord? And will you please teach us, Lord, how to comfort others? And God, you just be glorified during this time. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may have a seat. All right, well, Jesus and his disciples have decided uh, two days after hearing that Lazarus was deathly sick, they finally have, have begun their journey to Bethany, where, where Lazarus and his family lived. And in verse 17 here, we find out that when Jesus came, Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Four days. And it says that many Jews had, had come out to marry Martha and Lazarus' home to comfort the family. Now, the Jews, um, they did funerals very differently than what we're used to. Um, for the Jews, they would bury the deceased on the day the person passed away. So that very same day, they would, they would bury the person who had died because of the rapid decaying that would have taken place um, in their climate, in the climate of Israel, very hot climate. Um, and so when Martha says in verse 39 that by day four, there would be a stench, or if you have the, the KJV, it might say, he stinketh. And she, she is right about that, that. On day four, there would be a stench, no doubt. Um, she's not kidding. That's why they, bury, uh, they buried their dead right away. Um, so, so they would bury the dead, and then they would enter into this extended time of mourning. They didn't just have a, a funeral service. They would have an extended time of mourning that would last up to 30 days. And, and so the, the first seven days of that would be very, very intense um, and for the funeral, um, the, the Jew, Jewish families went all out. Uh, so we go out, all out for weddings. They go all out for weddings too, but they also go all out um, for funerals. Um, not only would the family be, be weeping and, and mourning for, for weeks, but the family would also hire professional mourners. Can you imagine that? Professional mourners who would come and they would uh, weep with them. Uh, these people would, would, when there was a, a lull in the, in the crying, these people would wail and they would get the crying going again. Or they would get the mourning uh, going again when things were getting too quiet. And according to Jewish tradition, even the poorest of families was expected to hire at least two flute players. I don't know about it, what it is about flute music in the funeral, but uh, they were expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman. For the funeral. It's kind of crazy to us, right? It's not something we're used to. So, you know, they really went all out for this period of, of mourning. And, of course, also all the family friends would be there weeping with the family. And by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus is in the tomb. And the period of grief is well underway. Um, on top of that, Lazarus's body has already decayed quite a bit. Um, the Jewish rabbis had this thought that during the first three days after death, the spirit of the person would hover around the body, kind of hoping to re-enter. Of course, you know, that, that's silly. We, you know, but but that's, that's what the Jewish rabbis actually taught, that during the first three days after death, um, the, the spirit of the person would hover over the body, hoping to re-enter. But by day four, the decay in the face was so, uh, so much to the point where the person wasn't very recognizable that the soul would leave. And go to its eternal home, or you know, uh, 
So, so Lazarus is, is four days in the tomb. He is as dead as it gets. Okay, he is absolutely dead. There is no logical hope of a resurrection. The situation is, is hopeless, completely hopeless. Um, the New Testament actually records two other times that Jesus resurrected someone who was dead, other than his, himself, of course. Um, but both of those were, were very soon after the person had passed. This situation is far different, at least, at least humanly speaking. The body is already well into the decaying process. There is no hope for Lazarus. It's four days. And, and that's where we want to begin to look at our first motivation for faithfulness in the trial. And that's the promises of Christ. The promises of Christ. Martha hears that Jesus is coming and she rushes to the edge of the town. That's probably where Lazarus was buried. They were buried outside the town. Um, and she rushes to the edge of the town to meet Jesus. And when she sees him, she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not be dead right now. Now, some commentators really uh, want to give Martha a very hard time about her statement here to Jesus, but, but I don't necessarily think that's fair. I think what Martha says here is not at all uncommon to us. It's a mixture of being overcome with grief of her situation, right? She's overcome with grief of her situation, but she's also showing faith, knowing that God is in control. She's going back and forth between, oh, this is a hopeless situation. How could God allow this? And, but I know that, I know that He is God. I know that there's a reason for this. I know that He's in control. There's got to be a reason for this. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of confusion during grief? I know that God is in control, but I just can't see how he's going to make a way out here. I just can't see how he's going to make good of this situation. I know the truths, but they're not helping right now. My grief has overtaken me. Right after she says that if he had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died, she also says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She does have faith in what Christ can do. But at the same time, her grief is somewhat blinding her and limiting um, her view of what Christ can do. I think that's a very common response to grief from a believer. But Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And I think you can kind of sense the uh, kind of disappointment in Martha's voice as she says, I know I know, I know, I know, I know, Jesus. He's going to rise again on the last day, the final resurrection. Lazarus will rise again, right? Can you sense that in her voice? It's like that moment when you're just in the middle of your grief. Okay? You're in the middle of your mourning. And someone with very good intentions comes to you, a believer, and says, well, we know all things work out for good though, honey. Uh, we, we know God's going to work this for good. You know God is in control, though. How do you take that? Be honest. Now everybody's smiling like, I don't want to say. I don't want to say. I, take, I tell you how I take it. I don't take it well. It's great truth, right? It's great truth, but in the moment of deep suffering, we're not always ready to listen right away. And our response is, I know, I know, I know. God's in control. I know. Yeah, that's why I really want us to tune in to how Jesus doesn't just bring truth, but He enters into her suffering later in this passage. Um, because so many times I think we get this so wrong when when we're dealing with someone who's suffering because we're so quick to speak we're so speak to quick to just jump in with truth and truth is always good but sometimes the timing of that truth is not always so good but as for here jesus says what he says because he's ready to raise lazarus back to life 
right now. He's not talking about some uh, future resurrection. He's ready to go now. He's not giving her future hope, but a very here and now promise. But the biggest part of Martha thinks it's hopeless. Even, even for Jesus, she's seen him do many miracles, but it's been four days, Jesus. Even for him, surely he's not going to raise Lazarus. She believes the promises of Jesus, but she doesn't bring the promise directly into her moment of suffering. I love what, what Charles Spurgeon says about Martha in this passage. He says Martha is a kind of anxious, he, Martha is a class of anxious believers. They truly believe, but not with such confidence as to lay aside their care. They don't distrust the Lord or question the truth of what he says, yet they puzzle their brain about how shall these things be. And so they miss the major part of the present comfort which the word of the Lord would minister to their hearts if they received it more simply. I think many of us can relate to Martha. We believe that the word of the Lord is true. But when crisis hits, we fail to let that word enter into our current situation and minister to our hearts. Spurgeon goes on to say that, that, that we so often frame the promises of God in our hearts never to be practically used in the moment of need. We know them. We, we know the promises of God. We love the promises of God. We hang them in spiritual frames on our spiritual walls, if you will. But we view God's promises as something in the far distance. Or, or something that, that just applies to, to everyone and not specifically, personally, us, necessarily. And we fail to be comforted in our time of need with these promises that are meant to be personal. And they're meant to be for every intimate situation that we deal with. You see, the Lord has peace and joy and hope and comfort for you today. Not just somewhere far off in, in the far distant future. This is the difference in the believer who struggles greatly with his or her faith during the trial. And one who receives joy and peace and, and even enjoyment of the Lord through the trial. I think we've both been in, in we've all been in both categories at times. It's bringing the promises of God to bear on our situation today. Your situation today. It's inviting the Lord in. Praying His promises back to Him. And watching the Lord pour over you His peace that surpasses all understanding. And Jesus doesn't scold Martha for her confused faith in the moment. Uh, rather, he, he goes on to, to reveal to her more about Himself. And he gives her a very, a, a great promise. Um, before we get to that promise, I think, it's, I think it's appropriate to review our major point from last week. Because I think it helps here. A wonderful promise for, for, for the one who might be suffering this morning. Remember that Jesus in, in verses 4 and 5 and 15. He gives us this inseparable link uh, to consider during our trials. I'm not going to review all the details of that, we looked at that last time. But essentially, the truth is this God allows suffering into our lives at times to reveal His glory. And His glory is most evident in His love displayed for us. And the most loving thing that God can do is not just whatever we desire. The most loving thing for God to do in your situation is not necessarily what you desire for Him to do, but it's whatever it takes to bring us or bring another person to a point of stronger belief in Jesus. Because Christ is the source of lasting joy, of lasting peace, and of comfort. Not the things of this world. That thing that you think should happen is not the thing that is the source of joy and peace and comfort. He knows where the source is. 
And the source comes only from stronger belief in Christ. So the promise here that that brings us comfort is the fact that God is going to do the thing in our lives every time that is absolutely most loving for us. And displays his glory the most. Whatever we're going through, we can know that it is in love that God allows it. Whatever you're going through this morning, you can know that it is in love that God has allowed that into your life. That should help us to fall at his feet and to trust him. But Jesus goes on here and he gives yet another promise. And and it's the fifth I am statement from Jesus in John's gospel. Where Jesus is again, remember, in these I am statements, he's proclaiming his equality with God the Father. And Jesus says in verse 25 in response to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus says, listen, Martha, I am resurrection. I am life. He's not saying I can pray to God for a resurrection and God may grant it. He says the very concepts of resurrection and life do not exist outside of him. If you're looking for life this morning, well, guess what? It does not even exist outside of Jesus. That abundant life that you're searching for. He is defined by resurrection and life. It's who he is. Jesus is saying that he has exactly what Lazarus needs And exactly what Martha needs. Lazarus needs a physical resurrection. Martha needs true abundant life in this moment of her struggle. And Jesus says that though a person may die physically, he shall live if he trusts in Jesus. Because Jesus will raise him on the last day. And physical death can never, ever take that away. Jesus has absolute power over physical life and he says whoever believes in him shall never die spiritually that is death for the believer just becomes a passageway to more abundant life than we could ever experience on this earth it's not that we as christians we just long to die but we don't have to fear death we don't have to be Afraid of death. Death simply escorts us directly to the very presence of Christ. And that spiritual life is never interrupted even for one instant through physical death. Physical death will never interrupt that spiritual fellowship that we have with Christ. Not even for an instant. We go straight from here to glory. Right in his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus is asking Martha if she really believes that he is the absolute and the only source of resurrection power and of life. Again, it's one thing to believe these things when we're, uh, when we're doing great. But Jesus was asking her to take this promise from abstract and impersonal. This distant belief and make it personal to right here Right now, believing that Jesus is resurrection and he is the life that she needs right now in this moment. And Martha really responds in in great faith. She, She gives one of the clearest and most complete confessions of who Jesus is. She says, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is to come into the world. Even in the midst of the trial. Even in the midst of the disappointment for for him seemingly showing up too late, um, her belief in who Jesus is is not shaken one bit. The enjoyment of the Christian life, even through suffering, comes when we live in the promises of God's word moment by moment by moment. And there are so many promises he has for us. I wish we had time to just Go through a list of them, but but promises of his power, promises of his goodness, of the joy that he brings to believers, 
of peace that he, he promises you peace this morning. He promises you rest. Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is a promise from Jesus. He promises us future hope. And He promises us present joy. He promises to refine our faith, to sanctify us, to make us more into His image. He promises that He's going to do the thing that He knows in His wisdom is best for us and that brings Him glory. He promises that He's going to be our good shepherd through everything. He promises that He's going to be our guide, our counselor, our comfort. And trials give us an opportunity, to, an opportunity to take Him at His word and receive great blessing even if He chooses not to remove the situation. Or we can continue to make these promises just some abstract and, and kind of distant thing and we'll find that we'll struggle greatly through the trial. And we'll fail to see that He does have purpose in our pain. The blessing in the trial is found only in pressing into Him and proclaiming His promises. And His promises are great motivation for our faithfulness. Yeah, I love the statement of, of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and, and Daniel when they're about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. I mean, can, can you imagine that really for a moment? You're seeing literally the people opening this, fur, this furnace are dying because it's so hot. And you're about to be thrown in there. And what they do is they bring God's promise right to bear in that situation. And they say the God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Promise of His power. Promise of His deliverance one way or the other. They say He is able to deliver us. And He will deliver us from your hand. And then they say, but if not... He chooses not to display His power in the way that they desired right in that moment. I'm sure they wanted nothing more than to, be, than to escape that furnace. If He chooses not to display His power in that way because He knows that is what is best, they say, we will worship Him anyway. We will not bow down to you and your idols. And that is truly standing on the promises of God and letting that comfort us in our fear and in our waiting, and in our grief, and our suffering. The next motivation for faithfulness that I see here is, is the passion of Christ. The promises of Christ, and then there's the passion of Christ. After her encounter with Jesus, Martha finds Mary and, and tells her that Jesus wants to speak with her. And so Mary goes, and everyone follows her. And when she sees Jesus... She has a very similar response to Martha, although um, she first falls down at the feet of Jesus in worship. But she says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you imagine what they've been saying to each other in the last four days? Probably that, right? If Jesus were just here, like, why isn't he here? If he had been here, he would not have died. Obviously, that had been the topic of conversation over the past few days. Mary also believes in who Jesus is and, and even in his healing power. But her grief has overcome her faith in the situation. And then we see Jesus with a powerful display of emotion in the next few verses. This might be the most powerful display of emotion in the Gospels. And I think there's. There's possibly many reasons for his emotions here. I don't think it's just a simple answer to, to why Jesus weeps here. In verse 33, it says that when he saw Mary weeping and the Jews with her weeping. It says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And that word for groaned in the spirit. It's a word that in the Greek literally means to snort like a horse. To snort like a horse. I can't reenact that for you really. Um, it's used three other times in the New Testament. 
And in those times, it's translated all three times, sternly warned or scolded. So there's, there's some anger here. There's, there's an expression of, of indignation, of, of anger. So what is it that Jesus is upset about? He's angry about something here, I think. And I think, first of all, he's overcome with grief at the effects of the fall that he's seeing played out. That Jesus is angry at what sin has done in this world. How it's brought so much suffering. He's watching these people weep and mourn the death of their brother. And it brings him overwhelming emotion. And I think he's mad. He's mad that, uh, at how, how it's brought so much, how sin has brought so much suffering and pain and death. You know, we tend to ask the question, if God is so loving, why does he allow evil to exist? And I think it's important to understand that God hates suffering and evil and sin and death more than you do. God hates it more than you do. Trust Him. He created an absolutely perfect world with no death, with perfect fellowship with Him, with no pain, with no suffering. But because of sin, because of man's rebellion, death and all of its effects entered in to this world. And when we're tempted to put God on the stand, we need to remember that no one hates evil more than God. No one hates your sadness worse than God, more than God. No one hates your pain more than God. No one hates suffering more than He does. See, sin cost Him His perfect Son's life. That is what sin cost God. So yeah, he hates it. He hates evil. He hates death. I think Jesus is also indignant here at the crowd's response. In verse 38, John uses this word again, groan in the spirit that snort like a horse. And it's right after he says that some in the crowd said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? You see what's going on here? Jesus has all of this planned out from the very beginning. He knows his purposes in doing this exactly the way that he did it. He knows his purpose in waiting two days. He knows his purpose in letting Lazarus die. He is all wise. And he's working out something wonderful for this family and for these people and for us. And all the people can do is question his motives. All the people can do is question him. He's upset here, I think, I think with unbelief. Not just weak faith in the midst of a trial, like we talked about with, with Mary and Martha. It's more than that. This is... Pure unbelief and pure suspicion that God has good motives. It's this thought that if you're so good and powerful and you really have my best interests in mind, how can you allow this, God? I wonder how often our unbelief grieves the Lord. When we don't allow His promises into our situation and we begin to question God's character, I think he is grieved by that. And maybe you've been in a situation where you had perfectly pure motives about something. You're just truly trying to do the right thing before God. You have a pure conscience before God and yet your motives were questioned. You were met with suspicion and distrust. Maybe you've been there. If you haven't been there, try ministry. I cannot count the times I've been there. 
I've been there many times where people begin to question my motives, but I know that I'm pure before the Lord. It's hard to deal with. It's a hard thing knowing you are pure before God and yet people still question you. People still question what you're doing. Well, how much more of an offense when we question Almighty God's motives? The Bible plainly tells us that His ways are higher than ours. Did y'all read that part? It's clear His ways are higher than yours. His wisdom is greater than mine. The Bible plainly tells us that we will not always understand what He's doing. But the Bible also plainly tells us that we can trust that whatever He does is done in love. And it's done for our good, for our belief, and it's done for His glory. And yet still, our tendency when we don't understand is to say, couldn't you have done this some other way, God? What kind of God are you that would allow this? I think Jesus is grieved by unbelief and he weeps. One other time that Jesus weeps is in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and through 44, if you want to look at it later. And he's looking over Jerusalem. This is just a few days after this event. And he's looking over Jerusalem and he's about to enter for the last time and he knows he's about to be betrayed. And he says, if you had only known the things which make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your sight. He's looking over Jerusalem, his people whom he loves so much, who he is literally coming to die for. And he says, if you had only known who I was, if you had only been ready, and he's weeping saying this, In other words, if they had only realized that Jesus was pure in his motives and truly came to bring them salvation, they could have had it. But for many, they rejected. They questioned his motives and now they will never know the truth. Oh man, that that makes Jesus weep over his city. Jesus loves this world dearly. And unbelief grieves him. And suspicion of his character grieves him. I think another reason why Jesus weeps here is that he he loved this family deeply. Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus. Okay, He knows that. He knows he's about to bring him back to life. But before he does that, he shows them that he's truly present with them in their grief. He knows the end point. And he knows it's a great one. But he also knows that right now, they are grieving. And he chooses to enter into that grief. He feels their pain. And even even to a greater degree, greater extent than, than they felt it. Romans 12, 15 instructs us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Jesus' overflow of emotion is a picture for us of what it should look like for us to enter into another's suffering. That is our calling in Christ. To get uncomfortable where when somebody's suffering or weeping, it makes you feel a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to say. Like, I want to do something, but I think I'll just keep my distance. I know you don't know what to say. God knows you don't know what to say. The suffering person knows you don't know what to say. But the gospel calls us to get uncomfortable and to weep with those who weep. When we see others suffering, our calling is to pursue them, 
and to suffer with them. To cry with them. To be there with them. That should be the number one thing a sufferer gets from his church family. There is a time to bring the appropriate truths that matter to bear on the situation, yes. But there's also a time for weeping. There's also a time to grieve what you're dealing with. So many times what the sufferer in church receives is emotionless Bible truths. Or much worse than that, suspicion of, are are you really trusting the Lord through this? Have you ever felt that when you're suffering and someone at church makes you feel like, oh, they're just questioning me altogether? As we need to learn to sometimes just shut our mouths and enter into another's pain. The word for, for wept here in Jesus wept is different than the word in verse 33 for weeping, talking about the crowd. That word describes this loud, uncontrollable wailing and weeping. This word in Jesus wept, it describes a moment when, when you're just overcome with passion, with, with emotion. You're just almost trying to hold it in and you just kind of burst, right? You just kind of burst in, in, in these silent tears. That's the word that's used here for Jesus. He's just over. Come, the Lord, the Bible sends a clear message that when we hurt, the Lord hurts. When we hurt, the Lord hurts with us. See, He may be allowing the pain or the suffering or the waiting into our lives for some purpose that we can't understand. And He is. He is, make no mistake, He is allowing it. And he knows exactly the end point that he has in mind, even when we can't possibly know. But still yet, he meets us. He meets with us in our grief. And our emotion. And we can rest assured that he feels that pain even more than we do. Even more than we do. He hates injustice more than we do. He abhors death and sin more than we do. He loves our loved ones more than we can. He understands our pain more than we understand our pain. He gets what it's like to have your character questioned, to feel abandoned. He understands that more than you ever will. Jesus is fully God. And completely holy, 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 holy. He's set apart from us. But let us not forget that He is fully man. And He feels all the pain that we've ever felt. Even to a greater extent than we ever could. That's why He is our wonderful counselor and no other counselor will do. He is the wonderful counselor. So let his passion motivate you to faithfulness during the trial. He hurts with you. And then finally, his his power motivates us to faithfulness in the storm. John records this quite succinctly. In almost a very ho-hum way, uh, Jesus asked them to remove the stone. Martha has her objection. Lord, there's a stench. Don't open that. Again, her grief and and logic has, has blinded her of God's power. And I love verse 40. Jesus really ties it all together. He says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, when did he say that? When did he say that they were going to see the glory of God? It was way back in verse 4. Way back in verse 4 was his message 
sent back to them when, when he was still a day's journey away, when Lazarus was still alive. Lazarus is on the brink of death. Remember, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And Jesus here in verse 40 brings it full circle. He's about to show God's glory through his his resurrection power. Sometimes his power is displayed through removing the pain. That's what he does here. Other times it's displayed in comforting the sufferer. But this time he's going to remove the pain. They take the stone away and Jesus prays. And I love his prayer here. He says he says that he knows that God always hears him. But he's praying uh, for the people in the crowd, for their belief. He's praying so that they may believe. You see the connection, the glory of God, the love of God in bringing these people to belief in him. It's all coming full circle for us here in verse 40. He wants them to know that he works these things by the power of God, the father whom they claim to serve. God the Father is validating Jesus as Messiah once again here. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Literally in the Greek, it's Lazarus here outside. It sounds like a a dog, right? It's almost Lazarus here outside. It's literally what it says in the Greek. And he comes out just like that. No big deal for Jesus. And then uh, I love this part. He, he invites the bystanders into his display of power. He says to them, loose him and let him go. And what a joy that God wants to display his power and glory to the world. And he invites you and I to be, play a part in that. Even when we, even when we certainly don't deserve it. That's why the Great Commission is not an obligation. It is an absolute privilege. We are invited to take part in proclaiming and displaying the power of God to this world so that they might believe. What an opportunity that is for us. Don't waste that opportunity because you're afraid. Don't waste that opportunity. What a privilege the Great Commission is. And that's it. That's where John leaves it. I've got some questions, don't you? Like, oh, where were you for four days, Lazarus? And what was that like? Were you, like, disappointed when God said, hey, you got to go back? You know, don't you have questions? What happened next in Lazarus' life? I don't know. We're not told. We're not given those answers, I think, intentionally. I think that John and the Holy Spirit ultimately want us to just bask in the power of Christ and let that remain the focus. It's a power that that overcomes all logic, all expectations. We saw a glimpse of that power in the fall when when God raised like $50,000 in a few weeks in this church. Remember that? Amazing. Nobody, none of us expected that, I don't think. But God did that. And He put so many other pieces so that we can be in this building today. God's power is a power that it, it says it laughs at your logic. It laughs at your expectations. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation. And there is no such thing as a hopeless person. Jesus just resurrected a man dead four days. And it was nothing for him. And someday he's going to resurrect all of our bodies. Long after four days after we're dead. Unless he comes back while we're still alive. And it's nothing for him. That is the power of the God we serve. That is the power of Christ. That you should be comforted with in your suffering. But even this, a resurrection after four days is not the greatest display of his power. 
I'm going to ask the band to, to come on up as we close. But Romans 1, chapter 16. It says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It is the gospel of Christ that is the real power of God. You want to see power, you look at the gospel. God creates with just a thought. He resurrects with only three words here. But His power is most evident in the gospel. Because it is through the gospel that is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that awful, terrible, unbelieving, wicked, suspicious sinners who hate God are made completely clean by the righteousness of Christ through His sacrifice on the cross. And the power of Christ is most evident in the love of Christ displayed for us on the cross. There is no love like this love. There is no love like the love of Jesus. And this morning, if, if, you, if you need to know Him, I want to invite you to come. Whether you're listening online or you're, you're listening here this morning, if you don't know Him, you need to know Him. Please come. The offer is open to you this morning. Like I said, there is no hopeless situation. There is no hopeless person. It doesn't matter where you've been and what you've done. You can come this morning to Christ and receive this forgiveness and experience this power of God in your life personally. You may be one who is constantly putting God on the stand for the evil that you see in this world. And He wants you to know that He hates evil more than you do. So much so that He's chosen to redeem this world of evil. By paying the penalty for the sin that caused it. He has the only remedy for evil, understand. He loves you this morning more than you can imagine. And He asks you to come. And He requires repentance and faith. That's it. Repentance of our sin. Telling Him, I am sorry and meaning it in your heart turning away from our sin and turning towards Him in faith. I'm going to ask you to come this morning if you don't know Him. You pray to God right now, bow your heads and, and pray to Him if you need to do that. And Christians, I, I pray that this message gives you strength when you're in the valley. Well, we've really hit this subject hard in John because it's there often in John. But I hope that it's been an encouragement to you to invite the promises of Christ and the passion of Christ and the power of Christ into whatever situation you find yourself in today. And let Him work it out. Let Him work it out while just declaring, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. I don't know how you're going to work it out, but I'm yours. I'm yours and I'm going to follow you. Be comforted in Christ this morning. And I hope it also gives us some insight into how we as believers can, can really enter in to the suffering of others. That's something I've been learning a lot lately as well. It's just, Josh, you need to just enter into people's suffering. But just sit with them there in the suffering. as our perfect Savior does so wonderfully. We're going to close with a song this morning. Um, but during this time of invitation, if you need to come, if you need to lay your life down at the foot of the cross, then come and come and tell me about it. If you need to come and, and just, uh, just thank Him for the comfort we have in Him. If you need to come and ask Him, Lord, I need that comfort right now that only you can give and come. Whatever it is, um, if there's a particular burden on your heart that you want us as a church family to pray with you over, then come this morning and we will do that.
There is power in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is power in Christ this morning. I hope that we realize that as we as we close this morning. I want to give you a few moments um, to just do what you need to do with Christ. And then we're going to close with a song.